a milestone in the history of HIV-AIDS today, Monday, March 4th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Reaction to the news that a baby girl born with HIV is now apparently cured. I'm hoping that maybe this story is sort of the next benchmark that we can race towards and really galvanize uh, the army that has worked on this for decades to, to keep charging forward. We'll hear what the news could mean for those working to prevent HIV transmission in Africa. And later, a conversation with the former mayor of Medellin, Colombia. He talks about turning the city around and winning the people's trust. Would you go walk, smell, listen, pay attention with all your senses, then you have the people in your skin. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If you turn your mind back to the beginning of the AIDS crisis, you'll recall the sense that HIV was a virtual death sentence. Well, a lot has changed. Drugs have extended lives dramatically. And today we get the remarkable news that scientists have apparently cured an infant of infection with HIV. The girl was born to an HIV-positive mother in Mississippi, but we wanted to find out what the news could mean for Africa. Each year, thousands of babies there are born infected with the AIDS virus. So we took a trip across town here in Boston to meet with some people who spend a lot of time in southern Africa. So we've come to Boston University, where I'm joined by Dr. Julie Herlihy, who's Assistant Professor of International Health and Pediatrics, and by Dr. Donald Thea, who's the Principal Investigator of the Boston University Preventing Mother-to-Child Transmission Project in Zambia, and by Leota Hamamba, who is the Director for that project in Zambia. Uh, Dr. Herlihy, let me ask you, first of all, what was your reaction when you heard the news about this child in Mississippi who was apparently cured? Uh, I was shocked. Cure is a word that we haven't used with the HIV-AIDS epidemic for a long time. And I haven't seen the evidence behind this, and I'd be curious to see the evidence. But as always, it's another twist in our journey with HIV-AIDS. And uh, very excited to see exactly what happened and what this does mean and the evidence behind it, because I think it could have great implications. And I have to ask you, uh, Leota Hamomba, since you've essentially just gotten off the plane from Zambia, you arrive here in the United States, you hear this news, and you're working on this project, preventing mother-to-child transmission of HIV there. What was your reaction? My reaction was, well, that is great. There's hope, hope for the future. Mm. So, uh, Dr. Thea, if this research holds up, and all the indications are correct about this uh, two-and-a-half-year-old in, in Mississippi, what would it mean for a place like Zambia? Oh, I think it could be. It could really, absolutely change the game in terms of um, preventing mother-to-child transmission, and that's the that's the the main focus of what it is that we're doing currently in Zambia. And the idea that we could actually prevent infection in these children is revolutionary. Do you think this kind of therapy, where there is an aggressive use of several antiretroviral drugs 
Is that feasible in a place like Zambia? Oh, absolutely. My understanding is that the regimen of three drugs that are being used or used in this child are the same as the regimen that we would put an infected, known infected child on, as well as the regimen that we would put mothers on, that we currently do put mothers on in Zambia. So if we can um, arrange to have the testing done at the bedside in some of these clinics and we could put them directly on these medicines, it's, it's absolutely feasible. What are your hesitations? What are your reservations about what you've learned so far and whether something like this is reproducible in Africa? Well, it has it has funding implications. Um, I think that it also has implications in terms of feasibility. Forty to sixty uh, percent of women deliver children not in a health facility; they deliver them in their homes, and those homes are oftentimes twenty kilometers away from a health facility, and it takes many hours for those children to get there. So, those sorts of very real world delays may have very sim- serious implications in terms of, of the feasibility of this kind of an approach. Also, as I noted earlier, uh, a lot of children are still being born infected with HIV in Africa. Um, I mean, as exciting as it is to talk about a possible cure, isn't there still a lot of work to be done on prevention? Yes, there is. However, we have made tremendous strides in the last three to four or five years in terms of decreasing the um, mother-to-child transmission of HIV. And I think that this would be a really important addition to the quiver of tools that we have for this situation. Dr. Herlihy, uh, we've heard from some people who work on HIV in developing countries that the world seems to be losing interest in HIV and AIDS, that there's kind of uh, a fatigue with with the subject, and that maybe apathy is setting in. Do you agree, and do you think news like this could rejuvenate interest? I think that's a great question. I think the history of the, the fight against AIDS has constantly been driven by this idea of a breakthrough that provides some hope and then it gives us something to race towards. And I'm hoping that maybe this story is sort of the next benchmark that we can race towards and really galvanize uh, the army that has worked on this for decades to, to keep charging forward. Leota Hamamba, tell me about the situation in Zambia. I mean, how hopeful are you feeling right now about the way things are being addressed in the realm of mother-to-child transmission of HIV? I think we are doing so much better now since we started this fight against uh, mother-to-child transmission. And we have made tremendous strides to where we are now. We managed to test babies at least at six weeks, but we still miss some, quite a number of babies. So with this information, as I said, it's... It gives us hope, but there are a lot of logistical problems and funding implications that we need to think about. So I don't know how long you'll be here in the U.S., but at some point you'll return to Zambia. I mean, people presumably will want to know, well, what about this great news about the baby who was cured? I mean, what will you tell them? I'll tell them that it's good news I had in the U.S., and I hope It will be investigated further so that we really know what actually happened and then learn from that and then try to do something to save our children. But then you need to roll your sleeves up and get back in the trenches on the work that you do every day. Yes, of course. (laughs) One thing that seems kind of remarkable, at least in the science of this, is that the doctors in Mississippi 
kind of came at this baby just hours after it was born with a pretty aggressive cocktail of drugs. First of all, is that correct? I mean, how aggressive is using more than one antiretroviral on, on a child? And is this kind of thing where you have lots of inputs and costly medicines, can that be done again in other parts of the world? Uh, it's my understanding that the regimen that was used is a treatment regimen rather than a prophylaxis regimen. Um, and it's a regimen that we commonly use in sub-Saharan African to, to treat adults. Um, and if we have the pediatric formulations available, then we would also use the same regimen to treat children. So having these meds at hand doesn't seem to be the challenge. Having them on the shelf, certainly, um, is, is always a problem. But I think the timing to treatment seems to be the linchpin that people keep focusing on so far in the media, which may have made the difference in this child. And that's when you really start asking a health system's infrastructure question. Can we get to kids fast enough? And do we know which kids to get to? Do we have the diagnostics available to know which kids would need a regimen as such in order to try and keep the virus from replicating? Just in conclusion, I mean, in the world of HIV AIDS, today is a good news day, yes? It's a great news day. Absolutely. It is. That was Leota Hamomba, director of Boston University's Preventing Mother-to-Child Transmission Project in Zambia. She joined me at Boston University today along with the project's principal investigator, Dr. Donald Thea, and Dr. Julie Herlihy, assistant professor of international health and pediatrics at Boston University. Ever since Japan's northeastern coast was devastated by a tsunami and earthquake two years ago this month, volunteers have offered food, money, and reconstruction efforts. But one Tokyo-based group is offering something a little different. Chris Benderev has a story. When a disaster hits your country, it's natural to want to help. I wanted to do something by photo, but I didn't know, like, how to do it. Yuko Yoshikawa runs a photo agency in Tokyo, and eventually she did figure out what she could do. She travels to small, damaged towns like the one she's in today, called Yamamoto-cho, and she brings along professional photographers. That's Brian Peterson. He and Yuko founded the volunteer group Photohoku. They take free, professional-quality photos for the people of Tohoku. That's the region where many people lost everything, including all their family photos. Today, Photohoku's brought about a dozen photographers here to the Big Town Festival in Yamamoto-cho. <laughs> Some of the locals are a little self-conscious about being photographed, and right now it's the Aura family, Kaidi, the baby, and his mom and dad, Natsumi and Takuya. But Brian is constantly doing little things to try to put them at ease. Uh, oh, Papa, why don't you put your arm around oh, Mama? Brian's American, but he's lived in Japan long enough to speak this sort of Japanglish. All right, right over here. Don't move. Gokunaide. Gokunaide. Three, two. All right. Brian's camera is not digital. He uses instant film, kind of like a Polaroid. You take a shot, and then a couple minutes later, it develops. And while we wait, the dad, Takuya, tells me he's a firefighter. He saw a lot of damage and death after the disaster. He crawled through wreckage to count bodies. And he says the little towns, like Yamamoto-cho, were forgotten quickly, even within Japan. There were rumors that when politicians visited by helicopter to survey the damage, they were actually napping as they flew by. 
Separate from how the photos turn out, Takuya is pleased that anyone has come all the way from Tokyo to see his town today. Here, here we go. I'll help you. Here, watch. Finally, Brian peels off the backing to reveal the photo. One, two, three. Bum, ba, ba, ba. That one copy of the photo, Brian gives that to the Iota family. The photographers take nothing home. And that's really important, Brian says. He knows that even though the locals are glad for the attention, Japan's disaster victims have this complicated relationship with photographers. Right after the tsunami, the media were here, snapping photos everywhere. I think they felt at times like they were animals in the zoo, maybe. And when they saw that the photos that we were making, we were giving them this thing and walking away with nothing, all of a sudden they said, I want that. Okay, On a small patch of grass outside, another photographer is taking portraits of Katsushi Sakuma and his family. Sakuma is the principal at the local elementary school. When the tsunami flooded my house, he says, it destroyed photos from different parts of my life. Me as a kid, my own kids, my first days as a teacher. Oh, here's a smile. It takes a couple minutes of shooting, but then, suddenly, Sakuma cracks a smile. Later, Brian tells me that reminds him of one of his first volunteer shoots. He was at a temporary housing complex, taking portraits of an old woman with her family. At the moment that we took the photo, they all kind of burst into laughter because of something probably silly I said. And the woman saw her photo, and she said to herself, she started crying, I'm almost crying just thinking about it, <laughs> right? And she said, uh, I didn't think I would see my, be able to see myself smile again. Brian says now she had evidence, something to hold on to. For The World, I'm Chris Benderev, Yamamoto-cho, Japan. See the photohoku guys at work. We have a cool little slideshow at theworld.org. Hey, anyone out there know what a chiropodist does and what that has to do with Abe Lincoln? Stay tuned and find out here on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. When I think of the city of Medellin, Colombia, I think of one man, the drug lord Pablo Escobar, who dominated the city until he was gunned down in 1993. But Medellin isn't Escobar's playground anymore. The city's done a remarkable job of reinventing itself. New parks and schools, new science and technology centers, and a new metro system have replaced the wretched social ecology of cocaine. Medellin has won numerous prizes in the process, the latest awarded last week by the Urban Land Institute. And the man who is arguably behind many of these changes is Sergio Fajardo, a mathematician turned reluctantly politician. I didn't come from the political world. I shouldn't be here today talking about these things. I should be giving lectures or talking to mathematicians, not to journalists. But Fajardo did speak with me this weekend in Boston. The once mayor of Medellin is now governor of Antioquia, the province where the city is located. And what he's doing today in that job goes back to the novel approach he and his citizens' compromise movement took when they got into power in 2003. 
Fajardo says a key part of that approach was talking to the people in the streets about the kind of city they wanted. I like to say it this way. We got the city in the skin. When you go walk, smell, listen, pay attention with all your senses, then you have the people in your skin. So what we have built, which is what makes us very rich politically, is trust. And I claim that trust cannot be bought, not even in Walmart. Trust, you have to build it. And that's very precious political capital. And that's what we did in the way we related to people. I just want to jump in because, I mean, what, what a lot of people cite in Medellin is the, the education, how that changed, and how all these public works projects that you undertook, parks and libraries and schools and a, a lot of things, how these two kind of prongs ended up by reducing crime, and how quickly did you notice that crime went down? Now, let me explain. When you have fear of violence, then people feel fear. And when you feel fear, the natural reaction is save yourself. That means people would retreat to their homes, and they would be individuals, and everyone would be sort of hiding somehow. So we knew that we wanted to reinvent public space. That's where we can get together. And we wanted to reinvent this public space taking into account the following concepts. First, we are going to build the most beautiful things for the humblest people. We will say, for example, the first step in improving the quality of education is the quality of the space. Some people say, but that's cement. Say, no, that's not cement. That's the recognition that the poorest girl in Medellin could go to a school as beautiful and as good as the one, as one girl from the richest family would attend. That's equality, that's respect, that's dignity, and that's very powerful. How did affluent Colombians in Medellin react to that? Because they're the rich. They're the ones who are saying, you know, this is what we've been fighting for, and suddenly it becomes democratic. They like it because a reasonable person will say, that's correct. So when you explain and you show that we are building opportunities to, to have a better society, people understand. So we build new spaces. We build schools, the science and technology park, the botanical garden, the cultural center, the entrepreneurship center, all places where what we were saying that we have to develop in people would be physically represented, and that's very important. People understood and were seeing how things were transforming their communities associated with their talent, and dignity is a very powerful concept. A lot of people have looked at uh, Medellin and seen its transformation as miraculous, or nothing short of miraculous, anyway, what you and, and the people, residents of Medellin, have, have accomplished. Um, it also seemed to coincide with uh, a strong link between President Uribe and George W. Bush, Plan Colombia, the fight against the, against the drug war. Do you think that your successes in Medellin could have occurred without Plan Colombia and the drug war getting much more aggressive? Undoubtedly, that helped us to reduce violence because there was this negotiation. So people who were members of these paramilitary groups in Medellin, they stopped. And what we did, very pragmatic, was, well, that's the condition. So what we are going to do is move on quickly, come up with this intervention so that we take away from them possibilities. So 
it was an opportunity, a door that opened up. We didn't know that it was going to happen, but once it happened, we said, very good for us. All these things that we did, we did it in our own. It wasn't the national government program or George Bush or Obama or none. It was our idea. It was our dream. It was our proposal. So it was helpful in the sense that it gave us more leeway in order to work and I'm sure that helped to reduce violence. Violence in Medellin hasn't finished. We still have a long way to go. As long as we have narco-traffic, we're going to have violence. That, there is no way, peaceful way out of it. How do you keep the peace in a city like Medellin? And once you've established this kind of uh, livable city, relatively speaking, how do you keep the peace? I mean, you're now governor of the province, so you, you oversee much more than the city, I understand. But I don't have to deal with the security in Medellin right now. That's the major's affair. And I myself think that the way is continue to innovate. The next step is not going to be build the schools, and they were already built. You have to think of something new to, to bring people's attention and, and continue building the path. And that's the challenge for the leaders. I'm curious to know if other cities around the world have approached you. I mean, cities which have, you know, equally uh, entrenched problems. I think of Mogadishu. I think of Kabul. What you did in Medellin, is it doable in Kabul, Afghanistan? I don't know. This is not a, a universal formula that they will say, you do this and then you will get this. The formula actually is understand people's dignity, open up the opportunities door, and that may, there may be many ways to do that. Well, Sergio Fajardo, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for giving me this opportunity on behalf of Medellin, Antioquia, our state, and Colombia, of course. Sergio Fajardo is the governor of Antioquia province in Colombia and the former mayor of Medellin. He helped with the city's near-miraculous transformation from drug trafficking capital to award-winning urban space. And speaking of a miracle, did you see an African musician made Google's Daily Doodle? You know that picture Google rotates on its homepage? The late South African singer Miriam Makeba. This would have been her 81st birthday. I'll always remember and dance to her this way. 1967's Pata Pata, the first African song to crack the top 20 in the U.S. Today's top news stories are coming up next here on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, tango on the bagpipe? This Spanish musician thought it was a crazy idea, too, when a composer first suggested it. And I started laughing like crazy because I thought he was joking. And, I mean, who am I to laugh also because I play bagpipes? And later, President Lincoln's curopodist and why he's kind of a celebrity now. 
RRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If you can believe it, the civil war in Syria appears to be getting messier. According to the Reuters news agency, volunteers from Iraq and Lebanon have formed a militia brigade and are fighting to protect a Shiite holy place near Damascus, the Syrian capital. That's pitting them against Syria's predominantly Sunni rebels. So now the sectarian fighting in Syria has echoes of the Sunni-Shiite violence that dominated the middle years of the war in Iraq. And it comes at a time when Shiites from Lebanon to Pakistan are feeling under siege. Vali Nasser wrote the book on the Shia revival. He's dean of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington. At first, Vali Nasser, is this call to defend the shrine for real, or is it just a symbol to rally opinion in the Shiite world and to maybe attract more volunteers? No, it is for real. Uh, there have been attacks on Shiite shrines, the most famous being on the uh, shrine in Samarra in Iraq, which caused the sectarian war in that country. There have been attacks on other Shiite shrines and mosques in Pakistan and in other locations as well. And therefore, the Shiites believe that that shrine is actually in danger. Now, these Iraqi and Lebanese fighters seem to be siding with the government of Syria, with, with President Bashar al-Assad. Why would they do that? Because largely the Iraqis and, and, and Lebanese think that if there is a change in the dynamics of power in Syria, it would impact their own struggles in their own home countries. So in Lebanon, the Hezbollah and the Shiites are in a struggle for power with the Sunnis. And in Iraq, the sectarian competition for power has never ended. So a Sunni-dominated Syria will change the balance of power in Iraq and it will change the balance of power in Lebanon. It would be a blow to the major supporter of the Shiites in the region, Iran. And also it would give rise to a particularly harder line militant brand of Sunnism, which they've seen in their own countries to be much more sharply anti-Shia. So they're really in Syria fighting to protect their own interests rather than really defend the Assad government for the sake of defending the Assad government. And given how much is at stake uh, for other countries in the region, how convinced are you that these men are real volunteers? I mean, couldn't they be proxies sent by Hezbollah and the government of Iraq? It's quite possible. The proxies are sent actually into the battlefield to fight, but proxies that are, are not necessarily sent to protect the shrine. Uh, the, the shrines really matter to Shiites in their everyday faith. And that's what attaches them in a very passionate way to their faith. So it's quite likely that if there is a call to defend the shrine, there would be plenty of volunteers who are willing to do so. Uh, governments are probably going to be sending their proxies into the battlefield in the various towns and villages of Syria to fight the opposition. I mean, it's already been well reported how there are numerous foreigners fighting alongside the rebels, mostly jihadis sympathetic to al-Qaeda. Now this news of Iraqi and uh, Lebanese Shiites defending this holy shrine outside Damascus. Um, is it bad news in your view that the conflict in Syria seems to be getting more and more internationalized? I think it was international to begin with. It's just that we didn't recognize that this conflict had immediate regional ramifications because the outcome would change the balance of power between the Shiites and Sunnis regionally. So even from the get-go, everybody understood that this conflict was about their own sets of issues and was never limited to Syria. 
and they and as the stakes have got higher uh, people are investing more and more in trying to protect their interest and trying to decide the outcome you've also just written a fairly damning article in foreign policy on Obama's handling of Afghanistan and Pakistan. What's wrong with the way this administration is tackling foreign policy? And uh, does your prognosis kind of also uh, have something to say about what's happening in Syria? Well, I think I think generally our approach to the Middle East has been uh, rather disengaged and hands off. That we've only reacted when there has been an imminent crisis and we haven't clearly articulated what our national security interests are in the region. And we have not been sufficiently alert to try to get ahead of the events as they unfold, understand when they're going and try to intervene to push them in a direction that would protect our interests and be beneficial to the region itself. And in the case of Syria, I think we allowed the conflict to just continue to a point where it now very clearly has regional dimensions and it's much more difficult to bring to some kind of a peaceful conclusion. And that would, would in some ways not only put the region's stability at danger, but also will, will pose certain risk for the United States in the coming years. Vali Nasser, author of The Shia Revival and the upcoming Dispensable Nation, American Foreign Policy in Retreat. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Secretary of State John Kerry is keeping a close eye on the situation in Syria. Today, he discussed it with officials in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. But he also made time for a meeting with the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. They talked about ways to resurrect the stalled Israeli-Palestinian peace process. It's an understatement to say that it won't be easy. There's so much that divides the two sides. It's difficult to see a way forward. Like the status of Jerusalem, Israel views the holy city as its eternal capital. Palestinians, who make up about a third of Jerusalem's population, feel very differently. They think of the city as the capital of a future Palestinian state. So you can understand how a new highway under construction there could stir deep passions. The world's Matthew Bell has that story. Heavy construction machinery cuts a wide swath of dirt alongside groves of olive trees and a row of upscale homes in South Jerusalem. It's the path for a planned multi-lane highway that would cut through the sleepy village of Beit Safafa. It's home to more than 9,000 people, and they're not very happy about the project known as Road 4. A few hundred Beit Safafa residents, along with a couple of dozen Jewish-Israeli supporters, held a demonstration against Road 4 last week. This is Beit Safafa, they chant. It's Arabic. It's Palestinian. But this is not just a story about a neighborhood fighting City Hall. As one activist put it, in Jerusalem, planning issues are never just planning issues. Road 4 is designed to link up a large block of Jewish settlements, 25 minutes south of Jerusalem, to a major highway leading to Israel's north. For Palestinians, it's all part of an Israeli plan to strengthen Jewish control over Jerusalem by putting facts on the ground. Ahmed Tibi is a prominent Arab member of Israel's parliament. At a recent protest, he told me the project is an example of Jewish discrimination against Palestinians in Jerusalem. Residents of Beit Safafa are Arab citizens of the city, and they are neglected. Their basic rights are being uh, aggressed by the municipality and by the government. Beit Safafa has been divided before. After the war in 1948, part of the village ended up in Israel, the other part on the Jordanian-controlled West Bank. 
The entire village came under Israeli control after the Six-Day War in 1967. That legacy means some of the residents are Israeli citizens. Others are Jerusalem residents, but not full-fledged citizens. Still, activists leading the fight against Road 4 are using some very Israeli tactics. Allah Salman is one of 16 residents who filed a court petition to change the construction plan. He says people in a Jewish area nearby did the exact same thing a few years ago. They told the municipality, you must stop the work. The same that we are now. They go to the high court and they win. Salman's group has led one protest at the Israeli prime minister's residence in the same spot where Jewish protests are routinely held. The activists are sure to chant in both Arabic and Hebrew. They welcome Jewish supporters, and they've encouraged protesters not to play up connections between Beit Safafa's fight and the larger Palestinian cause. The rallies have been mostly peaceful, but things got ugly at a demonstration near the village on Friday. Video posted online shows Israeli police on horseback confronting demonstrators, along with officers using batons and what appears to be tear gas. The tragedy for Israel, says city council member Meir Margalit, is that this episode is radicalizing Beit Safafa. A village that used to be the most quiet village in East Jerusalem, some of my friends say that the most Zionist village in, in East Jerusalem, become a place where an explosion can happen in any moment. Village activists say the city's disdain for them is obvious. They claim officials have skirted Israeli laws time and again, and they say the highway plan itself is flawed. It dates back to 1990, and a lot has changed since then in terms of the layout of the neighborhood. A statement from the Jerusalem mayor's office says it did consult village residents and that it will work to provide optimal services to Beit Safafa. It also points to a lower court decision that ruled in the city's favor last month. Meanwhile, construction on Road 4 continues, while residents of Beit Safafa await a decision from the Supreme Court. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. You can see how residents of that Palestinian village are protesting the new Israeli highway. Matthew's slideshow is at theworld.org. Of course, it doesn't always take a village to get attention. Former NBA star Dennis Rodman did fine all on his own last week with his visit to North Korea. It got Rodman lots of media attention and a new friend for life, apparently, a North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. Rodman's trip was not approved by the State Department, but it did have the backing of Vice Media, The company itself has been the focus of media coverage for what some would call its stunt journalism. Brian Stelter writes about media for The New York Times. He says Vice never expected its latest stunt to be quite as successful. They didn't know when they went to North Korea that the leader of the country would show up. They tempted him by setting up this basketball game. And in some ways, they were thinking like diplomats trying to get the leader of North Korea to show up. Which is kind of odd because it sounds, from what I've read, like Vice magazine doesn't really generally think like diplomats. And when you spoke with Shane Smith, (laughs) I'm just wondering, did he give you any idea why Vice decided to take Rodman to North Korea in the first place? What was the aim? Vice is an interesting brand because it's got a bunch of identities. One identity is 
first-person essays about wild, youthful topics. Another uh, identity is music and culture. But they also like to take these wild trips into foreign countries. Uh, they've had reporters uh, go to Afghanistan and Iraq and Liberia, and they like having that uh, worldwide angle to them. For them, North Korea was an obvious uh, target, shall we say, because Shane Smith, the co-founder, had been twice before, and he thought that the device could go again by setting up this exhibition basketball game. Uh, and, of course, they're filming a show now for HBO, so they've kind of got to impress HBO with crazy trips, with eye-opening exposés. Let me ask you this, then. I mean, in the New York Times documentary, page one, A Year Inside the New York Times, Shane Smith, uh, Vice, told journalist David Carr that he was not a journalist, uh, talking about a travel guide he made of Liberia. He said, I, right. I wasn't there to report. I'm just talking about, look, what I saw. Uh, so if this is not journalism, then what are the dangers of making it look journalistic? And they like to call it immersion. I would call it maybe stunt journalism or just, just a plain old stunt. The, the risk in this case is that it appears to be propaganda for North Korea. The risk in this case is that by having Dennis Rodman show up, it gives the North Korean regime some semblance of uh, celebrity, uh, some some suggestion that it's okay for an American to come and almost bless the regime despite all of the human rights abuses that are known to happen there. Dennis Rodman came out and he said, this man's a friend of mine now and, and he's a great guy and he's not like his father Clearly, I don't think a lot of people would want Dennis Rodman to be their spokesman. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting Dennis Rodman even is a spokesman for North Korea. But when he comes out and talks that way, and when he doesn't talk about the human rights abuses, it can come across as rather strange. Perhaps it's not okay for them to do this, or maybe it is. But when you spoke with Shane Smith, I mean, what did he tell you? Was he surprised that it got this far? I think Vice was pleasantly surprised they did get an audience with Kim Jong-un. They said they were not doing propaganda for North Korea, nor would they try. Uh, when I said that to Shane Smith, he said, uh, listen, I wouldn't make a very good propagandist. I'd be a bad propagandist. But the images may speak louder than the words uh, when we see the photographs that come out. Uh, and when we see Dennis Rodman saying, they've always got a friend in me. He's a great guy. It's something that can seem very strange and can send maybe the wrong signal. Did Shane Smith, when you spoke with him, express any concern for what this trip meant for relations between the U.S. and North Korea? I was struck by two sentences that Shane Smith said back to back. The first was 50 years of diplomatic uh, relations, diplomacy between the U.S. and North Korea have failed. I believe in dialogue. But then he turned around and immediately said, well, but, but we're not here to save the world. We're just here to show people something they've never seen before. Uh, you might take that as meaning that he's trying to have it both ways, you know, that he's that he's saying that he's trying to provide a dialogue between an American and a North Korean. But at the same time, well, no, we're not there to save the world. We're just there to produce good TV. Hmm. What well, was Dennis Rodman paid by HBO and Vice or either for his participation? He was paid by Vice, as were the three members of the Harlem Globetrotters who went on the trip. Vice is not saying how much they were paid. HBO is an interesting part of all this because they are financing the TV show, but Vice went for Vice. that may or may not appear on the HBO TV show. You know, I guess if President Obama calls Kim Jong-un, like Dennis Rodman suggested, and some kind of ball starts rolling towards peace, all of this will be reassessed. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't laugh. It just seems like an <laughs> awfully unlikely thing. Brian Stelter writes about media for The New York Times. Brian, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Today's GeoQuiz takes us to North London and the famous Highgate Cemetery. Notables buried there range from Karl Marx to Malcolm McLaren, the original manager of the Sex Pistols. Oh, and Issachar Zachary. Zachary wasn't exactly a celebrity when he was laid to rest at Highgate more than a century ago, but he is now, thanks to all the cinematic attention President Lincoln is getting lately. You see, Zachary was Lincoln's chiropodist, or as the Brits say, chiropodist. We'll hear more on that in just a bit. First, we want you to guess what part of Lincoln's body was the focus of Dr. Zachary's treatment. The answer's coming up after the break. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. So let's review a bit. Dr. Isaacer Zachary was a chiropodist who treated President Lincoln during the Civil War, which means he was the president's foot doctor, and that's the answer to our geo-quiz today. The good Dr. Zachary was buried in London's Highgate Cemetery in 1900, but he's only now being added to the cemetery's guide of notable burials. Reporter Russell Newlove explains from London. Issachar Zachary first Grand Supreme Ruler of the Masonic Order of the Secret Monitor within the British Empire. It looks good on paper, or in this case a tombstone, but does Zachary have a claim to fame that's a little more concise? Well, it turns out he was chiropodist to President Abraham Lincoln. Ian Dungerville is the managing executive at Highgate Cemetery. But also, he treated the feet of the Union Army, and after the war he submitted a bill for $45,000, And I think this was also his downfall as well, because we don't hear so much about him after that bill was submitted. So, Issachar Zachary might have gotten a bit too big for his boots. But why has it taken so long to give the president's chiropodist, his foot doctor, due credit in Highgate? We've got 170,000 people buried here in Highgate Cemetery, and so people become interesting at different periods of time. If I'd come to you a year ago and said, I've got Abraham Lincoln's chiropodist here, you might not have been so interested. But uh, now everyone's excited with Daniel Day-Lewis and the Oscars, of course, he's very topical, and it's a complete coincidence that this turned up at the same time. So everybody's coming to see Zachary now, right? What brings you to Highgate Cemetery today? To see Karl Marx. Um, we can see Karl Marx, it's great, I guess. Yes. Well, Karl Marx. Uh, what's he, Karl Marx's grave? Anybody else? Uh, Douglas Adams as well. OK, Karl Marx and the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy are pretty hard to beat. But surely being Abraham Lincoln's foot doctor counts for something. Do you intend to spend any time at the monument of Issachar Zachary? Wasn't planning to, no. Have you ever heard of Issachar Zachary? No. What if I were to tell you that he was Abraham Lincoln's foot doctor? I would say that's quite uninteresting. Do you intend to visit the monument of Issachar Zachary today? I don't even know who that is. I'm sorry. What if I told you he was Abraham Lincoln's foot doctor? Oh, that's interesting. Well, yes, I will certainly go there. (laughs) But it's not about the amount of visitors a monument gets, Ian says. It's about the lives being remembered at Highgate. What we're about here is celebrating the achievements of people who were buried here, um, whether they're actually very famous, like Karl Marx, or whether they're rather unknown. This is a place to reflect on the achievements of people who have gone before us, and I'm very pleased that we've got a, a, a famous chiropodist amongst those people. So there we have it. Highgate Cemetery. Not just a resting place for famous souls, but also those who cared for the souls of the famous. For the world, 
I'm Russell Newlove in London. You say chiropodist, Russell. We say curopodist. And who knows how Lincoln's foot doctor wound up in London in the first place. We'll have to save that story for another day. But here's a story about how a Spanish bagpiper from Galicia wound up in New York. Hope that'll do. And the crazy musical journey she took her instrument on. We'll let Beto Arcos take it from here. From an early age, Cristina Pato has been playing two instruments, classical piano and the gaita, the Galician bagpipe. She always figured the path of these instruments would never cross, and she'd have to choose one or the other. So to me, trying to find a space or, or a language that will represent me and my instincts and my traditions and all the things that I really love to listen to or to play, that was the challenge in the last probably like 10 years of my career. In 2005, Cristina Pato moved to New York. She says she'd planned to leave the bagpipes in Spain and focus on classical piano. And then I meet Osvaldo Golihov, who is an amazing composer from Argentina, who fall in love with the bagpipe. And I met him at the university while I was playing piano. And he opened the door to me to include the bagpipes in the classical world. Through Golikov, she met Yo-Yo Ma and started working with his Silk Road Ensemble. And that's when she started to discover the world of jazz improvisation and applied it to the bagpipes. Jazz is this amazing palette of colors and of languages and of cultures that are all represented in New York City. And being in this place in which everybody comes from another place and we all bring our roots and we all bring our traditions, but those roots and those traditions re-root again and they are born again with a different shape and with a different color and with a different um, motivation. Cristina Pato invited the Argentinian pianist Emilio Soja to co-produce her record. One day, he called to tell her he composed a piece for her called Gaitango, a tango played on the bagpipes. And I started laughing like crazy because I thought he was joking. And, I mean, who am I to laugh also because I play bagpipes, so no matter what I do, is going to be out of context. But... You know, he shared this piece, which is very difficult because he knew already the instrument because we were, we were already working together. But I don't have all the notes in the instrument. I don't even have more than an octave. And he was writing all these chromaticisms and he was challenging me like, oh, yeah, you can get them, you can get them. As a pianist, Cristina Pato can play anything from Mozart to John Cage to the Beatles. Now, immersed in the jazz and world music scene in New York, 
She says she's found the freedom to play any kind of music on the bagpipes. Probably for me right now, after almost eight years living in New York and, and working with musicians from all around the world, I feel more confident about taking my instrument out of its comfort zone. I think I have a, an amazing instrument. I think we Galicians have an amazing instrument that is the Galician bagpipe, the gaita. world. Beto Arcos. Amazing. I suddenly love bagpipes. See Cristina Pato on stage and in studio playing the Galician bagpipe at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI trust for innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International